This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. Natural Products Canada, the driving force behind Canada's natural product innovation cluster through support, guidance, introductions, programs, and investment. Hi, I'm Brett. And this is Aditi. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And pepperoni pizza. Yum. It always comes back to pizza. Definitely my fave. Welcome to the show. And now I'm hungry. Brett and Steph, in your households, who drives the household food purchases? Do you guys do family shopping trips or is it mostly one of you making decisions? How does it work? I do all the shopping in our house. I do all of the food shopping and I like doing it by myself. And do you go? Do you have like a Sunday ritual or something like that on a particular day? Every Saturday, I'm at Costco. Saturday morning, St. Louis Park, Minnesota, Costco. Find me there. I'll be there. Watch out for the minivan. And I feel like I grew up in grocery stores. Literally, my mom used to go, I feel like, and still does every single day. And I love grocery stores. It makes me think of childhood. Oh, I do not love grocery stores. I get overwhelmed. Oh, I love a good grocery store. Even Trader Joe's or Wegmans? We don't have Wegmans here. Did you know that? I know. We don't have Wegmans here either. I think about them all the time. I wish we had them here. Well, today we're chatting with Jennifer Stoikovich. She's the founder of the Vegan Women's Summit, and she's just really dynamic. She's a food tech leader. She's also written a book called The Future of Food is Female. And part of her argument is that in most households, not breaths, women drive those consumer decisions. And yet you see such disparity in where investment dollars are going because we don't have parity in female founders. Far from it. She also chats with us about how she became vegan and it's a very deeply moving and personal story which she's launched really into a movement yeah it was so awesome to chat for jennifer and just hear about her passion and what she's doing to make change both within the startup world but also the food world and how she's combining the two yeah it's so cool she has one of those jobs that really you can't really pigeonhole her and you can't really define it because she does so many things on so many different platforms. It was really cool to see. And that brings us to the full question of this episode, is the future of food vegan and female? And that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone will be vegan. What we mean by that, and Jennifer spoke about this a lot, are food manufacturers reframing the way they think about what foods to make and consumers reshaping their dietary preferences by the types of choices there are in the market. It ultimately comes down to the quality of choices out there in the market. And that's what she argues. Yeah, it's 100% about quality and choice. Like that's what's going to drive people. And I was thinking about her this weekend because I just got a vegan birthday cake for my mom who has stopped eating dairy and it was absolutely fantastic. Shout out Vegan East in Minneapolis. Just so incredible. And I think my whole family, to be honest, was kind of surprised by that. And I don't think my parents had ever really thought about getting something vegan because they associate it with not having the taste that they want. And the second that you showed them that it was something delicious, they were all in. With food, it's all about taste. I mean, at the end of the day, it's taste. And if it tastes good, people will eat it. In my opinion, it's like some of this stuff don't even call it vegan, right? It's just good. 
So that's such a great point. And it incentivizes businesses to make it for people, right? Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. President Biden just signed an executive order that could positively impact some food tech companies. The executive order makes U.S. biotechnology and biomanufacturing a priority for research and innovation. While the initiative mostly targets medicine and pharmaceuticals, it does seek to improve food security and drive agricultural innovation. The White House said in a call with reporters that this innovation could include new technologies that protect crops from disease, enhance seeds and fertilizers, and foods made with cultured animal cells. Guys, just the fact that cultured animal cells are mentioned on this call seems like a pretty big deal. One of the biggest things holding back the alternative protein space right now is the ability to scale profitably. And a big part of that is like fermentation processes, infrastructure around fermentation, modernizing fermentation. And so if there's more research dollars that go into it, it will certainly help or could help move the alternative space forward. And oftentimes like government money helps move innovation faster, right? They're not necessarily good at spending it, but they put money into a space and because they don't care as much about the returns, but it does matter for security of the population. Well, coming up next, Flavors, a food-centric creator app, has just raised $7 million in seed funding led by Andreessen Horowitz. Celebrity chefs Eric Repair and Tom Colicchio are also investors. This is an app that has short food-related videos and then interfaces with Instacart so you can buy the ingredients right there and make the dishes yourself. What do you guys think of this idea? Would you use it? Do you think it has any legs? I think it's actually a really cool idea, and I think there's space for a very food-specific where social media app, which this is kind of similar to. And the names you're saying really drive credibility in terms of the content of this app, right? Because at the end of the day, it's a creator content app. And so it's got to have some big names and it's got to drive people there. Finally, Next Level Burger, a Bend, Oregon plant-based burger chain, Brett, maybe you've heard of them, has raised $20 million in funding. This is a small burger chain that is all plant-based. You can get burgers, plant-based chicken sandwiches, and vegan shakes there. They've been around for several years, and they have expanded beyond the Pacific Northwest. Do you think it's possible for a purely plant-based burger chain to have traction throughout the country, not just the coastal areas? Yes. 100%. It comes back to the conversation we just we're having it's all about taste yeah we're big believers in this like we think it's like if it tastes good if the food's great if it's competitively priced i think that you can have mainstream appeal well coming up we'll talk to jennifer stoikovich about why the future of food is female and vegan we've interviewed many founders for full stack food but jennifer stoikovich is truly one of a kind she created the vegan women's summit which brings together more than a thousand women to help make our food systems more sustainable, accessible, and equitable. Stoikovich is also passionate about representation, starting programs to increase the number of women launching, investing in, and working for food innovation companies. Above all, Stoikovich says she doesn't expect everyone to become vegan. Rather, her goals are more about systemic change about targeting the food system to create more opportunities to bring delicious and affordable vegan choices to mass consumers. While Stoikovich, who's an investor, author, and founder, has long had an interest in technology, her core beliefs about food are shaped by a personal tragedy she went through as a young adult, forever altering her life's trajectory that started with a bucolic childhood in Canada. 
I was extremely fortunate to grow up in a very safe rural part of Canada. So I grew up just north of Toronto in a town that didn't even have a stoplight. So it was pretty much playing in the bushes, playing with sticks and stones. I mean, it literally, I think, was growing up kind of in the dirt for me. A lot has changed in the last few years in terms of where I grew up in that community. But I was fortunate to have a very nature-filled first few years of life. And did you have an interest in food or technology at all? It's very interesting because now that I'm older and now that I understand the complexity of the food system, I actually realized that I did grow up around quite a bit of farming. It was very normal to have farm life around me, but I actually grew up around some factory farms interestingly enough. And I did not know how to identify them when I was younger and that that's what they really were. So at the time, it was just kind of commonplace that there's just food and cow fields and things like that around you. I didn't pay much attention to it. On the technology side, however, that's really where I found myself most interested. I grew up with a stay-at-home dad one of very few at the time. Even still, I think stay-at-home dads are pretty rare. And he really just raised me to be a futurist. I watched a lot of Star Trek. We watched a lot of sci-fi movies. And we were always talking about the future. We were always talking about what we could do to innovate. And, you know, just this morning, him and I chatted about which parts of Star Trek are going to come true soon. And did you take any of that wonder about the future or technology or science into your college education? Interestingly enough, again, I took a little bit of a turn. So I wanted to get into business law. That was what my interest was. So I wanted to grow up and be a lawyer. If you had asked me when I was 16 and you said, Jenny, what are you going to be when you grow up? I said, I'm going to be a super high powered lawyer. I'm getting out of this small town. I'm going to make it in the big city. And so I went and I studied business law in university. And the thing that stuck out to me the most was this tiny little course I took in second year, which completely changed my life. And it was Introduction to Venture Capital. And you took that class and were you sort of bitten by the bug? hundred percent. It was all I could start to think about was, oh my gosh, like, how do we start to innovate? How do we make the world a better place? What are the amazing ideas that we can grow and turn into things? And, you know, growing up in a very small town, peering over at Silicon Valley and these big, big innovative places, I wasn't sure how I was going to get there, but I knew I was getting there somehow. That's amazing. So when you took this class, were you mainly inspired? Did you kind of think, Because when I first got exposed to venture capital, I was like, what is this? Like, how do I even break into it? Or did you kind of use that as a jumping off point? There's a few things. First off, I was in Canada. So if you picture 10 years ago in Canada, there was not a huge VC scene. I mean, Canada is really just now starting to come to the forefront of a place to invest in a grow company. Obviously, the Shopify exit did a lot for the tech industry. But back then, there was not a huge amount. So it wasn't clear the path into it. It wasn't clear as to how I could start working in the innovation space. More broadly, I just, I wanted to be a part of building things that would change the world. And so you had that interest that kind of exploded inside you. How did that come to fruition then? What did you do next? My very first summer job when I was in college was working with a private equity firm. I was interning and that really exposed me to a lot of really cool opportunities. So 
If anyone remembers Startup Weekend, do you guys remember Startup Weekend? Absolutely. I cut my teeth going to Startup Weekends. I had a lot of really, really fun and early exposure in that. That's actually fun fact. I met my husband at a Startup Weekend. <laughs> we are a Startup Weekend love story, you know, when I was in college. I didn't know that existed. That's amazing. Yeah, it exists. We are one of them. I don't, is Startup Weekend even still around? So I started to immerse myself in that entire space. And I ultimately ended up moving to the United States and doing stuff in that ecosystem. And then when you first came to the U.S., you were on the East Coast, though, right? I was in Florida, baby. I went to a little town known as Gainesville, Florida. Most people would know it as the University of Florida. It's the fifth biggest campus in America. So my husband at the time, his best friend, Josh, had created a company called Groove Shark. And Groove Shark was Spotify before Spotify. 35, 40 million unique users, huge, huge music streaming platform, really, really ahead of its time about 10 years ago. And so they were trying to make a name for themselves and build a tech scene in little old Florida. And then did you work there in the company... So I tried. That was my first kind of go at it. I, you know, it was the only tech company in town. I started obviously becoming part of the community and, and working into the space in that regard. But as soon as I needed a job, the first one that popped up, really interestingly enough, my good friend Josh was on the board of the United Way. And this is where I took a little bit of an interesting turn and one that I'm very glad that I took because it really influences how I think about things today. And I ended up working in public charity for three years. So I was managing probably three dozen different grant programs across education, health, literacy, food insecurity, huge thing that I focused on. Millions and millions of dollars I ended up actually managing across those programs. And so I did that for three years. And how then did you end up in the tech world and also the food world? Take us along your journey. So there's two kind of consecutive journeys that happened here. First off, I had always wanted to be in the tech space and in innovation, VC, whatever it might be. And, and I really saw public charity as an interesting way for me to gain experience and gain really valuable leadership exposure, but it was not the place for me to thrive. And so when I moved to San Francisco, there was an interesting opportunity where I could do community relations in the tech industry. And it was actually the organization created by Ron Conway, the godfather of Silicon Valley. Ron was big boss. I worked under Ron for six and a half years, actually. And so I was given the opportunity to take all of this community building, all these skills and all this expertise and apply it to the tech industry. It was a one in a million job, very unique job. It was incredible. I became a Silicon Valley lobbyist and I built a very, very amazing career in that regard. And so that's how I got into the tech space. How I got into the food space is a little bit more of a personal journey. So I actually experienced a very serious tragedy around the time that we were still in Florida at Grushark, back in the Grushark days. And unfortunately, my husband's best friend and his best man was murdered. And so you can imagine being a newlywed, being, you know, 22 years old at the time. It was absolutely shocking. It was a senseless act of gun violence. And we were thrust into a very new world of things, a very challenging time for ourselves, having to deal with a murder trial, having to deal with the grief, having to deal with the understanding and coming to terms of what had happened to us. And in that journey, we decided to do a lot of reading, especially a lot of Buddhist readings. My husband in particular got into a lot of Buddhism, and we were trying to understand 
what pain and suffering meant. And through that journey, we ended up actually going and forgiving the murderer, you know, going to the prison, deciding that we wanted to live our lives of compassion, deciding that we had suffered and been through pain in our lives and that we wanted to not be a part of that anymore. And so after we had decided to forgive the murderer, we realized that that compassion that we were seeking, that compassion that we thought we were a part of, was not aligning with our daily choices. And that is what we were choosing to eat. So the most compassionate choice that you can make is what you do three times a day. So we decided to look inside ourselves and realize that it was not who we are anymore. And we decided to adopt a vegan diet. And that is where my very interesting personal journey with the plant-based space, ultimately the future of food space began in a very atypical situation. Wow. I can't imagine going through everything that you did. At the time that this happened, you mentioned you were still in Florida, and then it was right after that that you then moved out west and then began this new life and a new career path in tech. Is that correct? Exactly. How did you decide to take all of that experience and go into food tech and in doing so, bring forth that other part of yourself that had been undergoing that personal journey in your choice to become vegan? How did that all come together? It came together because I made it so. It was, to be completely honest, this is the space that I have wanted to be in for eight years. You know, ever since I discovered the issues that were facing the food system, I have wanted to be a part of changing it, but I never quite understood where I would fit in it. So having taken experience working in the community and understanding the challenges facing underrepresented populations all across America and beyond, understanding how people eat, understanding what food insecurity means, right? And then layering that into understanding how companies can be built and how you can grow founder ecosystems and what you can do right and what you can do wrong. It kind of just became natural to me that when food started to get mainstream attention back in 2018 or so, I thought, Now's the time to strike. Now is when I really see food tech becoming a mainstream opportunity. It's not a niche thing anymore. So you made this decision. What did you do next? So I started doing programming with some really great people in the space. I am very fortunate to know some of the leading CEOs in the entire world. The leaders that have been building this space are friends of mine, and they have been for a long time. People like Bruce from the Good Food Institute or Josh Tetrick or Uma Valetti, you know, these guys have been all mostly SF based. So that's kind of part of how I, I got to know many of them because we were all running in the same circles. And I said, hey, why don't we start to bring you into programming that I'm doing in the tech space? We started to do programming together. So I did that for a few years, kind of tinkering here and there on initiatives, projects, programs, things like that. And then finally, in late 2019, I discovered that That work was going really well, but I was increasingly not really finding any women to work with. And I was discovering that it was becoming extremely challenging to find women that were leading in this space. And so that is kind of the birth story of the Vegan Women's Summit and and everything to come. What's the mission of the Vegan Women's Summit? So... Vegan Women's Summit started as just one single conference. It was 250 women in a room in San Francisco about two and a half years ago. And my goal was to create a professional space that could bring together industry leaders that cared about the plant-based space in some way or another. Because at the time, there was very little 
professionalized work. We now have close to 50,000 women professionals across six continents. We've expanded to do the future of food, fashion, beauty, and biotechnology. So anything that is removing animals from the supply chain. And the reason we expanded is, as I'm sure you both know, there's upstream and downstream effects. As soon as we we start to make any sort of investment or disruption in, in any piece of, of that chain, it affects the entire ecosystem. There's over 200 products that come out of a cow alone, right? Everything from Canadian money is printed with cows, all the way to crayons, all the way to beef, all the way to leather. There's a lot of implications. Going into the alt-meat space, I heard you talk a lot about how much traditional meat is processed. You know, A lot of people argue that the first generation of these alt-meat companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are also really processed. What are your thoughts about those types of companies versus like the cultivated meat or meat through fermentation? I hear this one a lot. The process conversation, dun, dun, dun. Nobody knows how to define processed. You know, everything on earth is processed to some degree for the most part, unless you're pulling it out of the ground. There's a good chance what you're eating does have some level of processing. But I think we need to take a step back and think about what people are currently eating before we start talking about this. Do you know what the number one sold meat, like meat product in America is? I know it only because I heard you talk about it on a different show. But Steph, I'll let you guess. I have no idea. Hot dogs? That's in the top five. Oscar Mayer Wiener hot dogs is in the top five. Yeah, absolutely. It's Tyson chicken nuggets. We are a consumer base that eats processed meat every single day, three times a day, sometimes more. So that's the most important thing to level set. Because if we're talking about what is the protein that is currently consumed in America, and obviously it's a little different in the rest of the world, but largely processed meat kind of rules the day there, a little bit more culturally specific in other parts of the world. But we eat a lot of processed meat. So with that in mind, many of the products that are coming out are looking to fill the gap there right? And they are not looking to replace like a whole natural cut of chicken breast. But the fact of the matter is those products are not consumed in mass like processed meats are. So I think that we have the ability to create products that mimic everything that people are looking for. I think it it just made sense from a numbers perspective for us to go for those processed meats first. So can I ask you, we've talked about this before in the podcast of like, what is holding up even broader adoption? of plant-based, cell-based meats. And the question is, does it have more to do with taste? Does it have to do with marketing? Does it have to do with availability? I'm curious your take on what needs to happen to make plant-based meat the number one replacement for traditional. So there are three reasons and three things that we need to look at. And we overcomplicate this. Taste, you've just said it. Cost, accessibility. That's how we eat in this country. I know that's how we eat because I've seen it also in what I did in public charity. People buy foods based on what is affordable to them, what is accessible to them, and what is desirable to them. And there's going to be some pretty massive, massive hurdles that we need to overcome to meet those challenges. Plant-based meats are still very expensive. So that's a huge thing that we need to work on. I was excited to see Impossible Burgers at Costco yesterday when I was there. It's the first time I've ever seen a big family economy pack for $9.99. So that's huge. Meeting people where they're at, meeting people at the Costco's, at the bodegas, at the 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven is a huge opportunity. A lot of consumers are at 7-Eleven. And of course, taste. Like you said, 
we have a long way to go on taste in a many, many different product categories. We have some really great products out there that I would say are really kind of at the top of their game, but there is still 99% of white space out there and a lot to be improved. It's also texture too. You know, beyond just taste, texture is a huge part. That mouthfeel. Uh, 100%. Mm-hmm. You're ruining a question for lightning round. I always ask about mouthfeel. I have learned so much from Stefan Brett about mouthfeel. What I'm hearing, it seems like, in the work that you're doing with the Vegan Women's Summit is that it's not about targeting the consumer directly in trying to convert people to become vegan. It's about working and improving that pipeline of entrepreneurs and companies that are going to innovate to provide those consumers desirable choices. Is that correct? So that they'll naturally want to gravitate towards those options. Absolutely. And when it comes to pipeline, there's a lot of roles that we play in this ecosystem. So first and foremost, we're creating a founder pipeline, an entrepreneurship pipeline. We've had over a thousand women pitch us in the last year and a half since we created our pitch competition. Our pitch competition, VWS Pathfinder, is literally the only competition for women in the future of food like to begin with anywhere in the world, which is shocking to me. A thousand women have submitted applications from over 31 countries. We also need to work on the investment piece. We need to make sure that there is a much, much greater pipeline of investors in this space. We need to make sure that these investors are getting access to these founder ecosystems. One of the things I talk about in the book, you know, you might've gotten through this page, but you're much more likely to find black founders on Instagram than you are on LinkedIn. I did read that, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of data that shows that VCs are not necessarily even congregating in the places where they should to make sure that they are making themselves available and accessible to all the founders that need them. So we're working on that piece as well. And then the last piece, and this one's huge, is just talent in general. We do a job networking event, a VWS Connect. And so we have hired for Impossible and Beyond and Miyoko's and cultivated meat companies. We actually create a opportunity for companies to hire directly from our ecosystem. And we've had over 2,000 job seekers come through us. You have exposure to all these amazing startups. Are you doing any investing? That's a great question, Steph. So... We are debuting Joyful Ventures. It is my debut fund. We are a pre-seed and seed fund that is focused on the future of sustainable protein. We will just be uh, starting to do our first investments this fall of 2022. We're aiming to be a $40 million fund. We've already raised more than half of it. And we have the C status that I could be speaking about this publicly. As I've learned from my attorneys, I am allowed to speak and promote the fund. Yeah, we're very, very excited to fund this next alternative protein 2.0 wave of founders. We know where the gaps are. We know where the holes are. We know where the opportunities are now in the ecosystem. What are some of the game-changing developments that we're going to see in the next decade or so in the way that food is produced and how we consume it? (laughs) So there's the ones that I can talk about publicly and the ones that I cannot, (laughs) as you can imagine. But 
I am very excited about what these future hybrid products are going to look like in terms of utilizing and partnering small bits of cultivated technology and precision fermentation and plant-based. I think that that's going to radically transform the food system. We are now currently allowed to sell cultivated meat products in only one country, Singapore, but Qatar has signaled, Japan has signaled, most of Asia actually has signaled that they're very interested in moving forward with the regulatory process. There's a lot of really great conversations going on in Asia to create a harmonized regulatory movement so that they can take a lot of what Singapore has created and replicated across other countries like, say, Korea or Japan. And if we're able to create regional change that allows for us to move forward with the technology a lot faster, that's where things are really going to snowball. And what's next for you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, so... I've been obviously touring all across the world for The Future of Food is Female, my first book that was published in April. I've got some other big projects, of course, for bringing the Vegan Women's Summit back. By the time that this airs, the Vegan Women's Summit 2023 will be announced in New York City. May 18th to 20th. We are going to double the size. We're taking it to 1500. We're going to be one of the biggest Future of Food conferences on the planet. Awesome. You make me so excited to attend this summit. And we want to also plug your book, The Future of Food is Female. Love that title. And thank you so much. I'm going to let Steph take it away now for the lightning round. All right. It is time for the first ever Stephanie-led lightning round. So here we go. So the rules here are one word answers. I do have a couple questions where I'm going to let you slide a little bit So first up, what's more difficult, planning a major summit or writing a book? Writing a book. Who is the best and most inspiring speaker you've heard live? I heard Al Gore once. What year do you think we'll see more alternative protein consumed than traditional meat? 2042. Ooh, okay. And what is your favorite alternative ingredient right now? I am a big fan of the precision fermentation way. So speaking of that, other than meat, the number one type of food that would make a difference if we all went to plant or cell-based? Milk. Okay, this is a tough one. I know that you have lots of friends in the industry, but of the alt meat out there, who has the best mouthfeel? I think that Daring has done an incredible job with their chicken. Okay can have to check that out. Controversial question, better beaches, California or Florida? I'm a diver. I have to say Florida. I'm sorry. Ooh, okay. Brett's going to be a big fan of that. This I'm going to allow you a slightly longer answer. What is the first step someone who wants to become vegan should take? Ooh, that's a great question. I actually started learning about how to recreate my favorite meals first before I started venturing into things like tofu and tempeh and seitan and some of the more plant-based specific, I started with the fake meats. Like I am a fake meat vegan that just completely did sub for sub for probably two years before I even explored the rest of the food palette. It worked for me. That is a great piece of advice. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. 
We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today, I'm here with Mark, the CEO and co-founder of GrainFox. Mark, what problem pain point are you solving with GrainFox? With GrainFox, we're helping farmers maximize their farm wealth through strategic marketing decisions and bringing all the noise of the markets down to a granular level. How are you doing it? So we're taking our learnings from 20 years and we're digitizing that with what we call smart plan. So the smart plan takes together your portfolio of crops that you're growing, helps bring those individual crops to be a relative recommendation and strategies for that farm. Then taking into consideration things like risk tolerance, cash flow, all the dynamics that really make a farm tick, who I like to sell to, who I don't like to sell to, all the financial dynamics and personal dynamics and bringing that in to make a recommendation. What's the big vision? How are you going to take over the world? We're going to take over the world by bringing these strategies to growers. We have uh, some really fun and interesting partnerships with groups that are working together with farmers. And our goal is to help farmers make the best possible decisions possible by using all the data that they have available to them at their fingertips today. Bring that all in to help them maximize their farm wealth to not only, it's not about selling at the best price on the year, but selling at the best time, the best opportunity and the best price during that window. Today, I'm here with CEO of Cygriff, Sean Thompson. Sean, what problem are you solving at Cygriff? The problem we're solving is bioavailability or the ability to get molecules inside of living cells that you want to get there. So this can be nutrition for humans or animals, or even fertilizers for plants or even pesticides. Go a little bit deeper for us of like getting a molecule into the cell. That sounds hard. How are you doing it? Well, it is hard. Cells have cell walls that are meant to keep certain things out and other things in. And so it's not a simple thing to get across. You know, say you're trying to get a drug into a cell or make food more nutritious, get more nutritional elements inside the cell. So our technology is called NanoPet. It's a nanotechnology that's derived from sour cherries. So my co-founder was a professor at the University of Guelph and found a way to process fruit to make these tiny little particles called nanopet. And then we can attach molecules to those particles and feed them to a human or an animal. And so take something like broccoli that we don't eat enough of in our diet. Well, we can extract the good stuff out of that broccoli, the green stuff out of the crown of that broccoli and pack it into these nanomaterials and then feed it to you as a powder. And then it's like in a pill, getting three servings of broccoli. Another application is in animal feed. It's a technology that has many applications in agriculture, food, and even the farm industry. So how are you going to complete the takeover of the world? Is it going to all these different verticals? Yes, we're going to pick them off one by one based on the regulatory difficulty. So the lowest hanging fruit for us is a dietary supplement. So we're getting ready to launch our first product in the United States under the brand name Cholesterol, And that's going to be a dietary supplement that we're selling online. In the meantime, we're developing these agricultural products. So animal feed and biopesticides. So we're going to do for pesticides what the mRNA vaccines have done for vaccines. So going back to the original question, is the future of food vegan? 
and female. Your thoughts? It's absolutely female. We have some unbelievable female founders in food right now. I don't know if the future is fully vegan, but it's definitely going to be super different than it is today with all of these new alternatives coming out, different ingredients from cell-based to plant-based. I think the future will look different. I think that there's always a place for that, like for vegan. Like I think that that is a part of the future of the food system. I do not think that the food system is 100% vegan. I'm going to bring in a vegan cake, though, just so you have it. And you may need to send one to me, too, Steph, because I may need a lot of convincing. From a gender side, it probably takes everybody to build a sustainable food system. But we definitely need more and more strong female founders, for sure. Well said. We'll all have vegan cake dreams now. Have a great week. See you next week. Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.